Welcome to the podcast of Imago Day Community, where we are convicted to help bring the whole gospel to the whole person, to the whole world. Join us in this Sunday service as we look to the scriptures, seeking to be transformed into the image of Christ. Today's scripture is from Luke 7, 36 through 50. Now one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, so he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. When a woman who had lived a sinful life in that town learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster jar of perfume. And as she stood behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who's touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she's a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two men owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he canceled the debts of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt canceled. You've judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You didn't give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You didn't give me a kiss, but this woman has not stopped kissing my feet from the time I entered. You did not put oil on my head, but she's poured perfume on my feet. Therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who's been forgiven little, loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Good morning, Imago Day Central. How are you doing? It's been a minute since I've been here. I'm the pastor over at Imago Day Eastside, and we send our greetings to you. Uh, God's been doing a great work there, period. Uh, we just got refuge off the ground. You know, refuge has been huge here, and it was inevitable that that ministry got off the ground uh, out at Eastside, and Cheryl Baker has led it, and we, we've had two meetings so far. Tons of people come out. It's an amazing work. We're also dealing with all the diversity issues of, you know, we intentionally went into that neighborhood with the game plan of making sure from, from jump that we were this multicultural church. And so we've been able to wrestle through all that. We've seen a lot of growth. We started on Ramona, outgrew Ramona, went to David Douglas, figured we'd buy us some time. And within months, we've, we've, we're at capacity. And so God has been really good to us there. We've got one of our first um, uh, missional grants off the ground. Daniel Mayfield has a, a, a work that's going on in Eastside that's creating opportunity, access, and equity amongst our refugee and immigrant communities. And so there's a lot of cool, really super dope stuff happening on the Eastside. So if you got time, if you got time, uh, come visit us every Sunday morning, 10 o'clock at David Douglas High School. We get sit in. All right, so you're invited. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for today. Thank you for this text. 
I pray that I would slip away and notice your spirit would emerge and speak to hearts in ways that I could never. I pray for your grace. Help us see ourselves in this story. Help us to be more hospitable and teach us about what hospitality is in Jesus' name. Amen. I, I don't know if you ever heard this saying. I've heard this saying a million times, but I think it's true. And the saying is, simply goes like this. If somebody, um, if someone tells you who they are, believe them. Let me say that again. If somebody tells you who they are, believe them. If dude is cheating on you, over and over and over again, there's nothing you're going to do to stop him from cheating. Believe him. That's who he is. If somebody's abusive and you can't somehow get out of the relationship, he or she is telling you who they are. Believe them. That's who they are. What we're going to find in this text is from Luke 1 to about Luke 6, we see the teachings of Jesus, the sayings of Jesus. And then the chapter or the book shifts at Luke 7. And we go from the teachings of Jesus to the doings of Jesus. And the interesting thing about the doings of Jesus is this. The doings of Jesus is Jesus' way of saying, this is who I am. Will you believe me? Think about it before we even dive into the text. Everything that leads up to this text in Luke chapter 7, first thing he does is he, he heals a slave, someone who had been marginalized and oppressed and, and definitely wasn't part of the aristocratic power structures of his day. Jesus heals a dead child. Resurrection brings the child back to life. And in Jewish culture, Jewish folks didn't touch dead people. And here's Jesus touching dead people. Then part of his teaching is so powerful because he spoke with so much authority that the tax collectors, the tax collectors, they were on the same level as sinners. There was nothing good said about tax collectors. The one people that verified Jesus' teaching were them, and they said his teaching is right. Now, there's a lot of people that could have verified Jesus' teaching. The last you would expect it to be is some tax collectors. So here's Jesus dealing with common folks, outcast, oppressed, marginalized, people with horrible reputations. And yet Jesus said, this is where the kingdom of God is constantly breaking in in our world. So if somebody says the kingdom of God is going to break in through broken, marginalized, disenfranchised people, like Jesus said, believe them. And therein lies the problem. Because what we're going to see as we come into this text is that these people who had seen Jesus, all of his ministry be subversive, upside down and different, ministering to people that most society wouldn't, what you see in Jesus is doing this kind of crazy transformational work and yet the religious aristocracy is having a hard time believing him. 
Now think about it as we come into the text for a second. You got two people side by side, juxtaposed. You've got Simon in verse 40, who's a Pharisee who invites Jesus over to his house. He's a religious leader. And then you've got an unnamed woman with a horrible reputation. You got Simon, he plays by the rules, even enforces the rules. And then you've got a woman that breaks them. You've got Simon who hosts this party for Jesus. And then you have this unnamed woman with a sinful reputation crashing it. Simon's a man. He has access. He's part of the religious establishment. And he's respected by virtue of his role as a teacher of the law. And yet on the other hand, this is a woman. She's notorious. She's not even welcomed at this function. And the interesting thing that we're going to see in this text is the person that should have got it, should have got Jesus, should have understood his kingdom, should have understood what he was all about, doesn't get it. And the last person that you would think would ever get it, gets it. And that is the upside gospel, upside down gospel that Jesus calls every one of us into with all the fire and fury and love for us to experience. And that's where we come to the story. Look with me in verse 36. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. Hospitality was big in Jesus' day. There was a high value on it. In some of that culture, it was the main event. It was the Super Bowl. They would bring a celebrity type or an intellectual or spiritual rabbi that would come and teach people how to connect uh, the theological thoughts of the day with culture. And this is a big event. Jesus being brought to Simon's house. And it wasn't just the people that sat and reclined at the table, but they would open, the, they would open it because it was a courtyard and people would stand around the table just to watch the event or hear the wisdom being espoused from whoever they bought there to teach. This is Simon's house. Now as a host, there were three things that was expected of you. Number one, you always kissed the purse, the guest that came in, you kissed them on both cheeks as a sign of honor and respect. The second thing is, is that you poured water into a bowl and you had your servant or yourself wash their feet. Third, you place sweet smelling frankincense or oil on the guest of the head. Now my question for us this morning as you read the text, how much, is, how much of this did Simon do? Zero. Nothing, nada. Simon is a horrible host. Terrible. And what does the woman do? She shows up with an alabaster box of perfume. So in her mind, she's going, I'm going to anoint his head. Simon's got to take care of the feet. She comes ready. Simon ain't ready. Which, goes, which shows you that some get it. 
the least likely get it and those that you think should get it don't. Verse 37, a woman in the town who lived at Stempho learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, so she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume, and as she stood behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. Now take in the magnitude of this. Can you imagine what you would feel like if somebody was this emotional over you? This woman is weeping over Jesus. In fact, the word weep is a Greek word, breako, which means to rain. She's just not crying little tears. She is raining tears on Jesus' feet. She's emotional about Jesus. She gets what Simon doesn't get. You see, Simon let Jesus into his home, but what Simon didn't do was let Jesus into his heart. She did. This woman welcomed Jesus as a guest into her heart, and therefore Jesus created space for her to be present in his life. She has no bowl, she has no water, she does the unthinkable. What does she do? She lets her hair down. Hair in that culture was a woman's glory and to let it down was a shameful act. And she is so in love, she is so smitten by Jesus that she is willing to let Jesus even into her shame. This is how emotional she is about him. She even anoints his feet, which was the lowest task even of a slave. And just when she getting her Jesus on, just when she loving Jesus, just when things is going right, just when things is breaking her way, Simon, in verse 39, shows up as the hater. He throws shade on her. It says in verse 39, when the Pharisees who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet. So now he's questioning Jesus' credentials. He would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Do you see the exclusive language that Simon's using? Do you see the disdain? Do you see that he's putting her in a whole different category of sin, a whole different register, and yet at the same time, he's questioning Jesus' credential. He's saying, you're not even a prophet because at least a prophet would know the kind of woman that's touching you. That's how self-righteous, moralistic Simon is. He knows what kind of woman he is, but what he's getting ready to find out through Jesus in the next couple of verses is the kind of man he is. Oftentimes, we categorize, we put people in different categories than our own sinfulness, and we don't see ourselves in theirs. And this is exactly what Simon did, does. But I love Jesus. Because instead of him being a host to Simon, what does he do? He flips the story on its head and he becomes a guest to this woman. 
He creates space for her to be present in his life. And then he uses this woman as a teachable moment to Simon. Look, in verse 40. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have nothing to tell you. He goes, I have something to tell you. He says, tell me, teacher. He said, two people owed money to a certain money lender. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back. So he forgave the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Jesus is doing something to Simon. He is taking Simon to school, and Simon don't even know he's getting taken to school. You listen to the parable, the parable is easy. You know, even Simon says, I suppose, you know, like anybody knows the answer to this. I mean, it's not hard. It doesn't take a rocket scientist. And yet Jesus is taking Simon to school. And how is he taking him to school? By educating him about sin. And the first way he takes Simon to school is, is that he puts Simon on the same level as the woman. And he does it in a different way. Because first he says, let me tell you the story about two debtors, right? One owed 500 denarii, the other owed 50. So if you look at it, you just naturally assume, well, you know, one that owes more is going to be forgiven more. One that loves less is forgiven less, right? And it's the lesson on forgiving and loving. But it goes deeper than that because what Jesus is doing to Simon is, is that he is comparing Simon with this woman. And he's not saying that their sin is the same. Because one owns 500 and the other owns 50. So he's not saying the sin is the same. It's like our world today. Sin ain't the same. But what he is saying is, and what is the same, is the fact that they both owe a debt that they both can't pay. If you took two people, one person was an Olympic swimmer and somebody else couldn't swim, and you dropped them off in the Atlantic Ocean, you said the first one to Florida wins and they both drown, who cares who got there closer? They both drowned. And this is what Simon is saying about this. This is what Jesus is saying to Simon about him and this woman. He said, who cares if you're living a more righteously, pious, moralistic life than her? You both owe a debt that you can't pay. But if the money exchanger cancels the debt, somebody has to incur it. In order for you to forgive somebody, somebody's got to absorb the cost. Somebody's got to pay the price. Jesus is getting very to the heart of his work, heart of the gospel, what it means about Jesus coming into this world. It's not just about canceling debt and forgiving sin. Somebody had to pay the debt. Somebody had to pay the cost. Somebody had to incur it. And this is the lesson that Jesus is teaching Simon about himself. You see, Simon had reduced sin down to the amount of the debt. And Jesus reduced it down to the awareness of the debt. And the biggest gift that God could ever give you is self-discovery, understanding how dark, how sinful, how wicked we actually are.
So what did Jesus do? Verse 44. <laughs> I love this. It says, he turned toward the woman and said to Simon. He turned to the woman and he said to Simon. It's like he's looking at Simon. He sees Simon. That's Sebastian. But he looks at the woman. What's your name? Huh? Angela. So he's talking to Simon while looking at Angela. He's talking to Sebastian while looking at Angela. And he says, do you see this woman? Do you? See, that's the problem. He can't see this woman because he can't see himself. You see, Jesus, the way he sees people and the way we see people is completely different. He looks at this woman, he says, I see her for who she is, not who she is. And Simon had it reversed. He saw her for who she is, not who she is. And that changed everything. Do you see this woman? How do we see people? It gets to the fundamentals of hospitality in our life, how, how we treat people, how we love people, how we serve people, how we connect with people. It gets to the heart of the gospel. How do you see the city? How do you see your neighbor? How do you see the community? How do you see Rockwood? How do you see Outer East Side? How do you see people culturally different, politically different, sexually different? How do you see them? Do you see them through your, your eyes or do you see them through the eyes of Jesus? He says, I came into your house, Simon. You didn't give me any water, but she wet my feet with tears and wiped her wiped them with her hair. You did not even give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you her many sins have been forgiven. forgiven. Now, the interesting thing is, he says, her many sins have been forgiven. That's in the perfect tense, meaning this wasn't when she got redeemed in this moment. Who knows when she got redeemed? It may have happened the night before, a few days before. She obviously knew who Jesus was because instantly when she went into this, when she came into the room, she knew exactly who he was. So she must have been following him around. Maybe she got saved a, a day ago, a week ago, months ago. But one thing I love about her is, is that once she encountered Jesus, she went in and worshipped him and didn't care what anybody thought. She let her hair down and breathe. And that's the power of the gospel. That's the power of forgiveness. You ever seen 8 Mile? I did. There was a scene where Eminem, at the end, He's in these rap battles, and he's battling all these rappers, right? And he's from a trailer park, and his mother slept with some of his friends, and they had all this stuff against him. And then at the end of the battle, they tried to beat him, because this is a white rapper, where a white rapper should not be in this rap world. And so he raps his way all the way to the top and battles this guy named Papa Doc. And just as they're getting ready to battle, somebody gives Papa Doc a bunch of information about Eminem. And he's going to rap about Eminem. He's going to tell him about himself. He's going to put all his stuff on Front Street. 
But Eminem, smart enough, decides that he's going to start the rap battle instead of end the rap battle. So he gets up and he puts out in his rap everything that Papa Doc is getting ready to tell him and it disarms him. Anyway, Eminem ends up beating Papa Doc. Because there wasn't anything that Papa Doc could do. Like he had already aired out his laundry. He didn't care anymore. How do you beat up on somebody who knows that's who they are apart from Christ? You can let your hair down and breathe. You can enjoy life. That's the beauty of the gospel. It finally frees you up to own who you are. And that is liberating. The guilt was gone. The shame was gone. She was free to worship Jesus. So verse 48. Then Jesus says to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sin? And Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Two things that I want you to see in this. Number one, notice what saves her. It doesn't say her tears saved her. It doesn't say her perfume, her alabaster box of perfume even saves her. It doesn't even say washing Jesus' feet with her hair saved her. It doesn't even say her love for Jesus saved her. It said her faith saved her. And the byproduct of that faith is a heart overflowing with love. It had nothing to do with her works. It had nothing to do with her past or present. It had her ability to put her whole trust, her whole faith, her whole belief system her whole life and livelihood in Jesus that saved her. But I also want you to see, number two, the nuance, the ambiguity, the paradox of Jesus who plays host and guest. And the truth of it's hiding in plain sight. Right here where it says, Jesus says in verse 48, your sins are forgiven. And the other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? That statement right there took the air right out of the building. <laughs> because we clearly see in this passage, Jesus being both host and guest. He is host to Simon, and yet he makes space for this woman by being her guest to connect with her. When the other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sin? You got to understand something. These guests were guests of Simon, but if it's true, that Jesus is who he claims to be, which is God, then they are his guest on his good earth.
the air they breathe, the car they drive, the money you make, the job you have, the child you have, the home you have, the neighborhood you have. It is because you serve a God that is your host, who gives you everything that you have, who is sovereign and in control of everything and nothing, including your whole life, spins outside of his will. There's a scripture that says the earth is the Lord and the fullness thereof. The ambiguity of God is the fact that he can be host and guest at the same time. He rules the earth. He rules your life. He knows the number of hairs on your head. He knows your thoughts. He knows your heart. He knows your past. He knows your present. He knows your future. You are a guest on his earth. And yet at the same time, this same God who plays host in our life is also a God that plays guest. And that's the whole point of the incarnation. He comes and he's allowed to, he allows Mary to host him as guest. There's a scripture in Luke 9, 58, it says, foxes have dens, birds have nests, but the son of man has no place to lay his head. Jesus had nowhere to lay his head, so he's always had a dependent He's always had to depend on the hospitality of others. When you become a Christian, the Spirit of God takes up residence as a guest in your heart. Jesus, in John chapter 2, verse 19 and 20, it says this, Jesus says to the Pharisees, he says, destroy this temple and I'll raise it up again in three days. And they replied, it has taken us 46 years to build this temple and you're going to raise it up in three days? They didn't get what he was talking about. He wasn't going to raise up another temple with brick and stone and mortar. He was raising up people and he would reside as guests in, in his people. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16, it says, do you not know that you're the temple of God and the spirit of God dwells in you? Think about the book of Luke. It starts in Galilee, but it ends in Jerusalem where Jesus is killed. But how is the work going to be continued? The work is going to be continued after he dies and he resurrects. He's going to work where? In the lives of people. Right? The church got off the ground in Jerusalem but how did it expand? Through homes, through ho house hosting, through hospitality. We serve a God that is both host and guest. We don't send people, we don't encourage people to go to church. We are the church. It's not about, yo, have you been to such and such? You need to check that church. Check. You, 
They need to check you. Wherever you go is the presence of God. That's where the Spirit of God dwells. Don't you understand that hospitality can be anywhere, at any time, wherever you show up. Hospitality is not a location. Hospitality is the way of the heart. It's the way of the attitude. It's how we treat people. It's how we love people. It's how we serve people. It's how we lay our life down for people. That's the point of the communion table. God broke into humanity as guests. And yet, he's a God that holds our life together as host. And he invites us into that kind of radical hospitality where we live subversively, where we live upside down, where we live counterintuitively and different. Whatever your instincts are, the kingdom of God is opposite. Whatever our culture says, who gets in and who gets out, it's opposite. This morning, at the communion table, God is calling us to experience him as host and guest. The hospitable God that calls us into this radical kind of hospitality to live different, to be different, to serve in a way that's unnatural to us. But it's in those places that the kingdom of God is breaking in. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you today for your goodness in our life. Thank you for your grace. And though our sins are different, our debt is the same. We can't pay it. Only you can, and you did. And we thank you that you are continually hosting guests in our life, and you call us out into the world as hosting guests. to be emissaries of your kingdom. And so as we partake of the bread and the wine, God, may you, just, may you unearth in our heart things that stand in our way, barriers that you want to break down. Even as Jesus risked his reputation to allow this woman to engage her, he broke down barriers. at his own reputation. God, you, you broke down barriers. You call us to live in that radical way of breaking down barriers because of your work. And so as we experience your blood 
as we experience your bread, as we experience the cup, as we experience the bread today, God, may you make a shift in our heart to see people the way you see them. In Jesus' name. We pray that God will use this message to strengthen your faith and draw you into a deeper relationship with himself. If you're interested in hearing other sermons or want more information about the church, please visit our website at www.amagodaycommunity.com. Thanks a lot for listening.